Shut up and sit down. The real problem is not whether machines think, but whether men do. It went up. It went up to the cloud. And you can't get it down from the cloud? Nobody understands the cloud. It's a mystery. Master the tools and technology that will change the way we do just about everything. Welcome to the gig. Hey everyone, welcome to the gig. With Thanksgiving around the corner, it's time to reflect on all the things to be thankful for this year, and to also start building our Christmas wish lists. Maybe a Pebble watch, or a set of Dash smart headphones, maybe some LifeX smart lighting. These, as well as 96,000 other successfully funded projects, have the popular crowdsourcing platform Kickstarter to be thankful for. So how does a highly disruptive platform like Kickstarter do DevOps? In this episode, we chat with James Turnbull, CTO of Kickstarter, to learn more about their DevOps initiatives and what's coming down the pipe for the platform. James also describes his first forays into IT while working at the library and encountering a systems error. In front of the screen, and I was like, okay, there must be a manual somewhere, and picked it up and flipped through it, found the code, and followed the instructions, and all of a sudden I was an IT operations person. James is also the author of seven popular books, including Pro Puppet, Pulling Strings with Puppet, and The Docker Book. Anyway, let's jump back into that conversation, shall we? And uh, 20 odd years later, I've been an ops person and a security person and an engineer and uh, a people leader and a uh, consultant and a bunch of other things. What's uh, What would be your favorite role out of those those that you just mentioned? Uh, engineering leadership yeah. is definitely my, my, my passion. So I know you're, um, you're over on the East Coast right now, is that correct? Yeah, I'm based in Brooklyn. Uh, you're from Australia. How would you compare kind of like the two tech or startup environments and how they differ and how um, similar they are? Uh, so my my experience of the startup scene in Australia was the, the, the dot-com era. So I, I don't actually have any experience of the current startup scene in Australia. So I'm, I have some friends who work at places like Atlassian and stuff like that. And, you know, you know without being too controversial, I suspect um, uh, that East Coast and West Coast US sort of startup cultures are probably more risk-taking than the US uh, than the Australian startup scene is. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that's because there's an abundance of capital available. Um, I suspect it's a lot harder for Australian companies without being based in the Bay Area or, or, or New York to sort of attach themselves to that sort of ready capital. Um, and it's a considerably larger investment, um, you know, to, to try and uh, bootstrap a company in Australia than it is in the US. Right. Um, uh, different rules around equity, uh, not a ne- necessarily an entirely favorable tax regime. Um, uh, I suspect makes business harder in, in Australia. But I, you know, I'm, I'm right. going off uh, conversations with with friends who have who have, have done startup things in Australia and then ended up in the US. Um, right. Uh, I think also we're somewhat. Um, you know, it's a much smaller market, 24 million people, um, and generally our technology communities are somewhat. Um, somewhat more risk averse um, than, uh, say, the, the the U.S. domestic market. Right. Um, you know, I, I think uh, if I look at the adoption of of technology in Australia, um, uh, some areas like payments, we're definitely fairly advanced. You know, you compare the the payments market in the U.S. to the payments market in Australia. Um, you know, we were doing you know contactless payments and uh, you know online banking and F post and uh, chip and pin and uh, you know. EMB cards and lots of stuff well before the US. Right. Uh, and, and, and in fact, we well before the, the, you could even argue that the US is not even there, there yet now. Yeah. Um, but in other parts of technology, um, you know, certainly uh, um, that sort of retail, um, 
you know, uh, consumer web services, uh, I think the U.S. Has, has had a significant advantage. Right, right. You know, now, the Amazons yeah. and uh, uh, crowdfunding is a good example, Kickstarters of the world. Other parts of the world are tend to be more, like you said, they're risk averse and they tend to be more careful about you know, jumping headfirst into technologies before, uh, before they're, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, look, my, my favorite joke about, about the Bay Area and about Bay Area startups is that the vast majority of products developed in SOMA, South the Market, um, uh, in San Francisco, are really only applicable to a market within four square miles of SOMA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, you know, there's significant product developed for which there is not a retail consumer market. Um, you know, and I think that that's a lot of something a lot of startups underestimate um, is that they, th- they 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 and the classic example here which is kind of a cliche, but it's like the Uber for something, like uh, you know, let's say it's the Uber for donuts. You know, it's a donut yeah. delivery service. Like that's only going to work in a high density environment where people have a disposable income and where the, the you know the the means of production is close to the to the. The, you know, the source of production is close to the, the customer base um, and we can achieve economies of scale. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't think out their business model beyond the, oh, everyone in San Francisco and New York will want one of these. Okay, but that's a finite market, right? Right. Um, uh, I always say to people, you know, if you can imagine that someone in Wichita, Kansas using your product, <laughs> uh, then, uh, you know, you, you have pretty much nailed uh, product market fit for for your average domestic U.S. consumer, right? Which right. is a, a, a you know, depending on the way you look at it, you know, 150 to 200 million user market, um, you know, uh, maybe even larger, depending on the the nature of the service and the and the and the sort of economic requirements of it. What are, what are some of the more innovative things you've you've been seeing? I mean, not maybe not so much at that that are coming out of Kickstarter per se, but but maybe some of the um, you know some of the systems or some of the the offerings being um, crowdfunded. Um, software crowdfunding is kind of interesting. I think there's probably some. Uh, I think uh, from a you know Kickstarter is probably their 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 niche in this particular domain is probably product related rather, and that's probably hardware. Right. Um, what we call product design and technology. Um, there is a little bit of software crowdfunded through um, like. Uh, like technology-based software crowdfunded through Kickstarter. I think the vast majority of software crowdfunded through Kickstarter is probably games. Mm-hmm. Um, like we've had some enormously successful, um, you know, games projects and uh, um, you know Shadowrun and and uh, uh, there's a BattleTech. Uh, people are trying to redo the BattleTech uh, computer game of the '80s. Oh, yeah. um, uh, so there's some pretty amazing stuff that's sort of been funded through um, uh, Wasteland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, th- some some you know substantial studio-sized games. Um, you know, uh, I, I I focused on ones that I'm actually interested in, but there's a huge <laughs> industry out there of, of you know console and and um and more uh you know uh, uh, independent games and lots of stuff that are funded on the platform. Um, right, right. You know, and obviously there's some significant product and 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 technology. Um, things like the Pebble Watch and stuff like that that are that have been funded on Kickstarter. Both both iterations of the Pebble Watch were, were on Kickstarter, um, and a lot of design and technology innovation. So people um, looking at you know uh, like the 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 best possible product in a particular domain or a particular space or or a particular piece of innovation that they you know they want to see if they can they can build something that is that is a uh, you know innovative solution to a particular product problem right. um, and those can range from simple things like you know kitchen utensils right up to you know clothing and luggage and uh, watches are a popular like the you know I think we've seen a real boom in sort of uh, um, you know that sort of 
consumer watch technology. Um, you know, uh, uh, I think there's a there's a, a recent one was as a someone was designing the perfect kitchen knife, mm. like the perfect you know, um, uh, uh, which is a you know uh, one of those sort of um, you know particularly given the strong interest in, in consumers in, in sort of cooking and kitchenware and all sort of stuff. There's a you know the perfect kitchen knife is a pretty is a pretty clever sort of product. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think there have been occasional. I know there's a few open source projects that have raised money on um, on Kickstarter. Um, some people in the Rails and Ruby community have have, have raised some money. Um, a couple of people have built sort of um, uh, you know uh, extensions to tools or funded um, development and stuff like that um, through Kickstarter. It's you know it is a good system for for doing that sort of thing, particularly if it's sort of a project oriented objective like you know. Um, port a particular tool to OSX or uh, add a particular set of features. Yeah, so it is, yeah. It, it's used from that point of view, but it's probably not the, uh, you know, it hasn't been extensively used in that way. Well, James, you're a, you know, you're a big open source guy. You wrote a book on Docker and, and Puppet. Um, what were your inspirations for writing those books? What was the impetus? Um, was there a particular audience that you wanted to reach? Yeah, I, I think one of the big challenges with open source is that, that um, there, is some, there is some amazing open source technology out there. Uh, some of it is not well documented and not well explained, um, uh, and you know I, I've been I've been lucky enough to work with some very smart folks and um, uh, lucky enough to take advantage of of, um, of some amazing open source communities where where you know there's lots of information available and I could puzzle stuff out and 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 I could make my life considerably easy by implementing some of those tools and Puppet's a good example of that. Like when I first discovered Puppet, I was like. Wow, this is this automates all of this stuff that I used to do manually, or you know, I used to cart around on a write a script or cart around a, a DVD or a CD with a bunch of you know um, even run lists and stuff like that. You know, I, I was completely blown away, and I looked at the documentation, and it was fairly hit and miss. Um, Luke Kinnies at that stage was was the sole developer of Puppet. This is pre Puppet Labs existing, um, and uh, I said to Luke, you know, um, uh, I, I'm interested in writing a book about Puppet. Um, I think it's a really interesting technology, and I think people could like uh, uh, you know our basics to to sort of uh, you know medium to advanced sort of skill book would be really useful. Um, you know, and I promised to sort of leave the documentation in a better state than I found that as a result of that, would you be okay with me writing the book? And he was, I think, I think Luke's first response to me was like, huh, I always wanted to be the run, the write a book about Puppet. Um, <laughs> and uh, years later, he did write a chapter about Puppet in uh, one of the Art of Open Source um uh, series that O'Reilly, no, uh, Manning did, I think, um, which talks about the architecture and development of, 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 of the particular open source projects. But um, my objective was to make that the knowledge about Puppet and, 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 and to a less extent about Docker, um, when I later wrote that, uh, disseminate that to a really wide audience in right. such a way that, that um, they can pick up the book with very little, uh, more, more, very little, you know, the books are aimed at people who have a basic command line, Linux command line or Unix command line skills um, who have a problem and the problem is sort of, you know, we articulate the problem as being like, I, I want to you know, build servers or I want to fix my my deployment workflow in the Docker case and take them through a bunch of scenarios and examples and and teach them the skills necessary to be able to, to, be able to use the tool and maybe teach them more advanced things later on. Like I find a lot of people tell me, oh, I read the book up until chapter four and then I had everything I needed to to like do my, my local development workflow for Docker and I haven't read the other chapters. I hear they're pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, that's a perf- I'm, as far as I'm concerned, that's a perfectly, I, I'm happy with that reader. Like sure. um, they've got everything they want out of the book. Absolutely. Uh, any other books coming down the line? 
I am writing a book currently called The Art of Monitoring, um, which is uh, uh, artofmonitoring.com, and it's really designed to sort of – many years ago, I wrote a book about Nagios Mm -hmm. um, when the Nagios 2.0 release came out. and I, I'm sort of deeply interested in sort of monitoring and monitoring technology, um, and I'm deeply disappointed that the state of the art for a lot of people, particularly outside of the startup bubble, is sort of Nagios and, and the sort of uh, monitoring holy trinity of checks of CPU, memory, and disk, and yeah. you know fixed thresholds, and and uh, not very many, you know, not much thought about graphs or or uh, or you know not much thought about um, more sophisticated monitoring techniques mm-hmm. so I'm trying to write a book that sort of in, uh, teaches you how to implement a, a more sophisticated monitoring framework and it's probably the most technologically complex book I've written but um uh you know I, I think it um it, it'll be I, I'm not I'm not 100% happy with what I've got I've got about 500 pages which is a terrible thing to say when you're not 100% happy with what you've got but um <laughs> uh I'm hoping to have something sort of knocked together by the end of the year great well we, we'll be uh, looking forward to that at Kickstarter, I guess you know, without I guess saying too much that or saying as much as you can, um, how is DevOps alive and well at Kickstarter? Like, what's your DevOps success or level of success there, and what, what your philosophy in general around that? Sure. Um, so we're a, we're an interesting case because uh, DevOps. We're one of the shops where where everyone working here was sort of like DevOps. Um, that's what we already do, right? Um, <laughs> so. My entire operations team are largely people who are application developers. Um, so they they always wrote code, uh, and uh, you know my lead, uh, the the sort of ops engineering manager, um, uh, you know he would be a perfectly acceptable Ruby and Rails developer in his own right if he so choose to do that. He just happens to have a, a sort of specialization in in opsy sort of stuff. Um, so we we um, the mandate for our sort of Ops DevOps sort of function is really twofold. The first the first part of the mandate is uh, they they exist to support the rest of the engineering team in being able to ship code better and faster and and simpler. Um, so really, their 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 primary objective is to be able to make it easy for the engineering team to be productive. And then their secondary consideration is to keep the site up uh, and to make it operationally you know to operationally manage and and um. Uh, and ensure we have a you know an efficient and fast site. But everybody as a collective, the whole engineering team, owns things like performance. Mm-hmm. Like we don't we don't put performance in the hands of the ops team. It is not their problem to make sure that every pull request um, is you know well thought out and well architected and and performance has been considered. And that's a that's a that's a responsibility and accountability for the whole engineering team. Last question: favorite album of all time? Oh, that's hard. Um, yeah. save the best uh, for last. Stone Roses, Stone uh, Roses. would probably be Stone Roses. Stone Roses would probably be my my, um, my all time favorite album. Where can uh, where can people learn more about uh, your stuff you've written and uh, some of your speaking engagements? And um, probably um, probably the best place to go is my blog. Um, so it's um, uh, Uh Sorry, dot net rather. My brain is melted down by the end of the afternoon, um, <laughs> and uh, that's that's where I usually post sort of blog posts about stuff and there's, and there's links in there to sort of books and, and things I'm doing and stuff like that. Fantastic. Well, hey, James, uh, thanks again for joining us on this podcast. Really appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in. And special thanks to James Turnbull for joining us for this podcast. For more about DevOps, security, and other fun stuff, check out scriptrock.com.